0: Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash
1: Wondery. You can live out your MasterChef dreams.
0: Lawrence Ray uh, moved in with his daughter back in 2010 after a jail stint. He effectively told her, and and she was a sophomore here at the time, that he just needed a place to crash for a while. That is when the alleged abuse began. The conduct alleged here is outrageous. Uh, It makes you angry. If you're not angry, you don't have a soul. After years of allegations about unspeakable abuse against young people he met as college students, 60-year-old Lawrence Ray was arrested at this New Jersey home on Tuesday.
2: One of his daughter's roommates
0: and one of the female
2: victims in the indictment were in the residence at the time.
0: According to the indictment, Ray held so-called therapy sessions in his daughter's dorm, alienating several of the victims from their parents after earning their trust. The document says he controlled them by using verbal and physical abuse, which escalated after he and some of the victims later moved to New York City. The indictment also charges Ray with depriving his victims of food and sleep and taking explicit pictures of some of them. Prosecutors say he accused them of lying and stealing, and in response, they say he asked for money, eventually extorting nearly a million dollars.
3: Hey everyone, and welcome to Royal Crime Profile. I'm Laura Richards, criminal behavioural analyst, former New Scotland Yard, founder of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service, and host of the podcast Crime Analyst. And with me today is...
2: Hi, I'm Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer of Criminal Minds, and we also
4: have... And I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director for CBS's Criminal Minds and lots of other things, but above all, before all that, I am a mom. I'm about to send my two precious boys off to college, and the case that we're talking about today absolutely chilled me to the bone. Um, we've all watched a documentary that is incredibly disturbing and there's all kinds of other articles that we've read and research we've done. But this is such an important opportunity to expose the kind of mind control that can happen in the place that you least expect. And if it can happen to the young people in the case we're going to talk about, it can happen anywhere. It's not just about some kids you know, these particular kids who go to this particular college that this happened to. Um, but Laura, do you want to jump in and tell people what we're talking about?
3: Yes, we're talking about Stolen Youth, which is a three part Hulu documentary. And actually, I did do some training this week. It was a masterclass on coercive control, and some of my attendees talked about this documentary. And I did receive lots of messages on Instagram. Um, in particular, of people saying, have you seen this? You really need to see this. So, Lisa, when we were texting and you said, you know, maybe we should cover stolen youth, I was really keen to see what it was all about. But what I will say is, my goodness, it's a really tough watch. It is not easy at all. And that it was great that they had the trigger warning at the start. And I was really pleased to see that coercive control was mentioned there. but it really is a very hard watch. And I finished it late last night and I have to say I didn't sleep a wink. Mm -hmm. It was just on my mind because it is so disturbing and so insidious. And what we see in the three parts really is the absolute definition of coercive control when we see people unraveling and being unraveled by another person. And it's really distressing to see but I think, you know, the the documentary itself, well, I think that Zach did a, a good job, actually, Zach Heinzeling, of putting this together, because I think the fact that it did caveat the health warning about coercive control, but there wasn't reference throughout about coercive control. No, there wasn't. But, yeah, and I think that that was a bit of a miss, but he obviously did speak to two cult experts. And I think we should have that discussion, Jim and Lisa, because oftentimes people are told that this is a cult where I'm not sure this is about cult behavior. I think it's much more about coercive control and it's much more about an individual who I don't know about you, Jim, but I was going through the psychopathy checklist. And perhaps before we get to him, we will talk about the victims and just your reaction to it, Jim. And I do want to go through coercive control specifically, because it's really important that must be centered when talking about this case.
2: Yeah, well, Laura, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I, throughout the whole thing, was saying to myself, the difference between this cult, and I'm using air quotes, and all others, all other cults that I've studied, is that people typically join an organization for an ideology. And then that ideology gets turned into this adoration and this control by the leader. And it can go very haywire, like we saw in Jonestown. And in this case, it's the leader who takes basically a random group of young people that he had access to. And one by one, he separates them out figures out what their vulnerabilities are and exploits them to the max one by one. He didn't try to do it all at once. He broke them down one by one. And once he got one into the fold, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one fell. And fortunately that's also how it unraveled, but you're right. This is not in any way a traditional cult
3: a lot of the times it's being called a sex cult. What I will say about coercive control is that often when there is coercive control, there's sexual coercion and the two go hand in hand. What motivates an individual to behave like this? Well, as you mentioned, Jim, picking off the students one by one, but the invitation to stay at the college, to stay in the accommodation by the daughter also gives this sense to these young students that this is a safe person. It's a dad. Right, And he's staying there and there's already a power imbalance right from the start and just how he, all the kids thought that he was odd to start with. So their instinct was right, but then he made them feel special. He was cooking and cleaning and doing all these uh, acts, which made him uh, assume a special place within the house that when you're students, you don't have that much money, you're not taking care of yourself that well, you're not eating that well. And he was targeting the things that mattered to them the most. And as you said, Lisa, you've got two boys going off to college. This is your worst nightmare, right? You think you're sending them to a safe environment, but here's a dad living in the student digs and picking them off one by one of trying to make them feel special, seen, feel understood. But all the time he's weaponizing and going to weaponize that information.
4: Let's set the scene for people who haven't watched the, the docu-series and who maybe shouldn't because it is so disturbing. But let's just talk about where, who and where and what we are. So we're at Sarah Lawrence College, which is, I don't know, Jim, it's like 30 minutes north of the city. It's not that far from New York City. You can get there by the train. It's like 15 miles away. In fact, our social media manager lives there. Um, I've been through that part of the world. And contrary to what I've heard kind of chattering out there, it's not this elitist, um, rich school by any means. It's a it's a liberal arts school, and and just to to define what that means, it's not about a particular political philosophy. It's liberal in the sense of the Greek word "liber," meaning. Unlimited, right? This is the kind of place where a 15-year-old Lisa would have loved to have gone because you can explore your science brain and your poetry brain. And if you like art and you like biology, I mean you can craft your own major. You can craft your own way. You can study whatever you want to. Um, and it's a it is a rigorous school, but it's not, um, it's got like a 50% acceptance rate, which is 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 child is competitive but not like i mean my boys are applying to like schools that are a 14% acceptance rate 6% acceptance rate you know so i would be thrilled if if they got a 50% acceptance rate and the the tuition is like 40 40k a year which is a lot for some families for sure but some of the, the kids uh in in this particular group were there on a, on a scholarship and were there because their parents were, were not rich. They were, they were self-described poor, a poor family who worked really hard, um, to provide this education for their kids. So I kind of want to just set the, set that stage that this is a small college, like 1200 undergraduates, which means you've got one-on-one teachers. That's why you go there. You're not going to like Columbia where your, your, your classrooms are like cathedrals. They're so big the lecture halls are so big you go here to have a one-on-one small college experience and that's who these kids were
2: it kind of reminded me of sort of the Montessori model you
4: know Mm -hmm, where
2: where basically students are allowed to pursue what they think is their life pursuit in other words it's not as structured as most colleges and universities and yeah it is a college right it isn't it isn't a university. It's still an independent college that, um, you know, it's small and and manageable. I mean, mm-hmm. it is not its isn't you're not going to uh, basically a city, you know, which, right?
4: But you're close enough to the city so that you can enjoy the right, city. Right. But when I what right. I
2: what I meant is you're not going to like, a, you know, you go to UCLA, you know, what are the thirty five thousand people?
4: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's it's def- absolutely huge. So so anyway, just at the stage so this is sophomore year uh in this particular dormitory housing where there are what eight roommates living there and so Talia, her father, Lawrence comes to live in the student housing. This this housing where there's like eight roommates and he sleeps in the living room at first. And and this is a time where people are trying to break away from their parents, right, to, to, to become young adults and to make their decisions. And so a parent coming into the situation, even if he's the cool dad, I mean, that's very odd, wouldn't you it say? Is,
2: it's odd and intrusive. It's very bizarre.
3: And the other thing just to say, I think it's helpful you situating the college because I didn't know it. And I think a lot of our listeners won't. But what also came across was the quirky nature of some of the students there, i.e., you know, when you go to college, of course, you want to embrace lots of different things. You want to try lots of different things. But the college seemed to be marketed at those who weren't the type to fit in at the general colleges and schools. So, therefore, at this college, maybe they felt like a different level of bonding and camaraderie amongst them. And so they knew each other, I think it was for a year, wasn't it, before they decided to get a house together. And although the house was on campus, it was in a quiet corner of the campus because I was watching it with the Marge. And the Marge kept saying, but why isn't there any supervision here? Why isn't there anyone just checking? Why Why is there an adult male I mean, if it was like my university, which was huge and sprawling, as you said, it would be very hard to know really what's going on. But why weren't questions being asked? You know, was he not being seen on campus? And as you said, Lisa, it is really odd. You want to escape your parents. You don't want them hanging out, sleeping on your sofa. The whole setup was just odd. And I think all the students felt that from the start, right? They were busy in their... um, you know, chaotic worlds, drinking, smoking, doing their thing, but they their instinct, because I always go back to trusting your first instinct. Their first instinct was right about him. And then they started to uh minimize and then see him as helpful. And I don't think he was the cool dad either. But the more these stories came out about him meeting Gorbachev or being in the Marines and having pictures to back up these things that they all thought sounded ridiculous then he started to gain more credibility amongst them. But these weren't just naive kids. And I really don't like people saying about the victims, well, this is about them. They were stupid. They shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have done that. It's actually much more about the slow, insidious level of manipulation and calculation that's gone on. But I think that's that's a very important point, that you go to escape parents. You don't go to have your dad hanging out In your dorm where you're staying
2: right it's an important part of development in in a young adult's life in a teenager or young adult's life in that they're trying to sort of establish their own world their own guidelines their own foundation out in the real world and be able to stand on their own two feet and to have one of their roommates fathers just uninvited start living there It was very, very bizarre, but it just shows you the nature of the person. And you'll see it over and over and over again with this guy that he just forces himself onto other people, takes advantage of somebody else's charity or or nice gestures and and literally just moves in. And this is a this is, you know, he 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 immediately establishes himself as someone who can help. Well, He immediately establishes himself as somebody who's cool, has amazing stories. And and of course, 90% of them were, if not 100% of them, were just lies. It's all bullshit. Um, I have a feeling that some of the photographs that he was showing were probably doctored photographs. He establishes himself as cool. And then he establishes himself as someone who can help them to become good adults. And that's what they all want to be, right? That's that's their goal in life. They want to be successful adults. He is an adult. He seems, he appears to be successful. He's played this, you know, poor me, right? What do you call it, uh, Laura? The uh, poor me syndrome. Yeah,
3: his PMS so, is very high.
2: It is. It is totally high, and he uses it over and over and over again. You'll see over the course of this series. So then, what he does, and this is this was very clear. His M.O. was to separate out one at a time these young people who were all living together, who were all friends, and then just pick apart their backgrounds, their fears, their insecurities, and then use them against that person. And once he was able to do that and break that one person down, then he went on to the next one and the next one until he built this group that people are calling a sex cult but it's not exactly what I would fit in. I I, I don't think it fits into the definition very well, although it does have some aspects that that are cult-like.
4: He really inserted himself as like the house therapist. And that's how he was able to really pick them apart. And some of the people like, you know, the roommate Raven, she wasn't buying his big bag of bullshit. And she's like, get the fuck out of here. Exactly. And she's trying to figure it out. But others like Santos, who if you read the New York Times reporting, he had attempted suicide in high school. And and Isabella had had a, a, a fractious relationship with her mom. And he was able to zoom in on those Roommates and really get into their heads and be this understanding, empathetic therapist. And then Dan Levin, who at that time was kind of questioning the fluidity of his sexuality, and and so to him it was just he, he was they were all just prey uh, for this guy. And and pretty soon he takes them out of that. That housing, he takes them out of there and it's not it's no longer on the Sarah Lawrence campus anymore. And I think that's what uh, I bump up against in the titling of the docuseries and, and the reportage of it, that it's not really the Sarah Lawrence cult, because it turns out two other people who were from Columbia University, Harvard University, end up entering into this group um and and i and i hate the word cult for some reason and maybe you can talk me through why because i guess the connotation of cult is just it makes it seem like the others, like this can't happen to us because we would never, our kids would never be susceptible to a cult. But it's like you say, Laura, it's course of control. It's mind control. And I hope people can go out and listen to Stephen Hassan, who is an expert in mind control and cults and listen to his interview with some of these survivors. And he really explains that he breaks it right down on, on what it really is.
2: Right. He starts with sleep deprivation. He starts giving them Adderall to make them stay up all night and then do work for him through the night and into the next day. He's doing traditional mind control techniques. And there are a number of times where literally these poor students were begging to be able to go to sleep and he kept them up and he, it, it causes disorientation. It causes, this is exactly what Reverend Sun Yung Moon did to control the minds of the people that started following him. And it's it's all a feint and, you know, misdirection and manipulation. And that is what this guy did. He used those techniques.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
3: For me, if you overlay Biderman's chart of coercion and prisoner of war, the, the model and the psychology, what we see is that very clearly happening within this three-part Hulu docuseries. And I struggle with cult and also the Sarah Lawrence College, the, the title, because firstly, it situates the college as if that's the thing. And secondly, it situates a cult as if that's the thing too. But it's not a thing. It's an actor. It's a person that did all of this and the problem that i have is if we remove him out of even the title where is he he becomes invisible and a cult takes on its own life where i don't believe it did take on its own life there was one person operating on a power imbalance and as an authority figure manipulating all of them and i think it was a very smart decision actually of Zach's when he started to get into this case he was actually talking with Larry to begin with, and he actually got a lot of the material from Larry. And ironically, he said that the material that Larry sent was because he felt that Larry was seen as the victim in it, where actually what was very clear to him was that he was the perpetrator. And Zach took the decision early on not to situate him and his voice all the way through it, and to actually use the evidence and use the victims And I think that that's a very important part of this documentary, if we just talk about the three parts that Daniel Levin wrote the book and he wanted it turned into a documentary and he wanted the victims and survivors' voices situated in it, because this story would be told by someone else. And if you don't have someone really understanding what went on and have someone with judgment and not really getting coercive control and the gaslighting and the mind control, you might have a very different docu-series. My my only other point about that is that I wish that a coercive control expert was spoken with, because I think that that's a a bigger mission. And I really feel that this case, again, just further underlines why it's important to criminalize coercive control and why it's important that we can say he is a coercive controller and that he goes to prison for that. And that the other actors are not actors in their own right. And we'll get to what happened at at the end. But I think that it's very problematic when you have one person who's operating at this level of sophistication and you've got the FBI not really getting it. You've got lots of people not really understanding it. Even with the documentary, coercive control isn't situated. But coercive control really operates when you have a perpetrator who is clearly creating a behavioral regime designed to exploit to dominate, to create codependency, to isolate, to entrap, and to control. And that's what he did. He had a clear setup plan from the start and picking each of them off. The setup started from day one. So when Lisa, you talked about their vulnerabilities and he acted as a therapist. Yes, the very things that were their vulnerabilities. It's like the paedophile in the playground gym, not you, not you, not you, but you. So Raven, who is strong And probably from a well-adjusted background, she can see something's not right, but she doesn't have the language for it. She can't say, hang on, that's coercive control. And that's why it's so important to Mm. give a language, because someone like Lawrence can very quickly spot the ravens, the strong ones, and then start to change tactic and turn her friends against her, that she's the problem. And you have got an adult man doing that, and he is solely doing that this is his right mastercraft if you will his tradecraft and the students are no match for him even you know those who are strong and have their heads screwed on properly but the language not being there is a problem it's like a child trying to describe a sex act but not knowing it's a sex act and not knowing the language to describe that and not knowing the boundary erosion is wrong and what Lawrence does very well is eroding all the boundaries eroding the things sexually as well taking them all away and creating that codependency so he gaslights them he loves bombs them he makes them feel special he charms them um you know even those outside of the group to be able to manipulate them and he's good at what he does and that's what we mustn't lose sight of the the tactics that he uses they can be overlaid with prisoner of war tactics of the isolation, taking them out of the college and getting them to a different environment where he has full monopoly. He can monopolize their perception. He's got trust because he's the only one who really understands them. He gets them. That's what they believe. He saves them. That's what they believe because he keeps telling them that. And when you're isolated and then you've got an echo chamber of the people in that chamber saying the same thing back, and you've got Lawrence being omnipresent, Omnipotent, even when he's out and he's doing other things, they are policing themselves and policing each other. And these belittling tasks that they're doing, these were bright young things and they're just reduced, aren't they? And coercive control is actually what she or he cannot do for themselves. And that's what we're seeing unravel yeah. on our, you know, in, in front of our very eyes, aren't we? We're, we're watching that unraveling, but he will give reward and punishment, debility and exhaustion of creating that exhaustion to gaslight, degradation, and the rules and regulations. And I can very clearly lay out those 10 points of adding to Biderman's chart of coercion. And, and you see it in front of your very eyes happening. And that's what's so disturbing, because you want to reach through the screen mm-hmm. and help them and save them.
2: Right. And isn't it another important aspect that he separates them from their family and friends, that he literally he he does it emotionally. He does it physically. And then he actually says, no, actually, those people, they're trying to kill you. They're trying to hurt you. You know, he goes from they're hurting me to they're hurting you. And so now they have no foundation. They have no one they feel they can trust. And it's only him. They, he has effectively isolated them from the world.
4: I don't know if we directly said it, but we should say that so once he starts out in the dorm housing, but then after sophomore year he invites his victims to come live with him in this one bedroom apartment in 93rd Street. So they're commuting back and forth up to go to class and I think Dan had a little job at a yogurt store or something like that, but they're living all of them in this incredibly small apartment. And all kinds of things are going on. And the, and the reason that we know that this all happened is that there is this incredible video footage that he was constantly documenting and taping, which, Jim, I don't know, as a prosecutor, you're just like, why would this guy do this? Because this is proof of, of all of his crimes. But And this is what is so extraordinary about this documentary, this primary source. You see it. You see them over time, lose incredible amounts of weight. These kids turn into these little shells of themselves. Right. They look like zombies. Their hair is falling out. They're painfully thin. They're starving. They're sleep deprived. And you see it. It's not just something that they recall, but you actually see the video footage. And that just shocked me. To yeah, what
2: door. do you think about that, Laura? Why, why do you think he documented it all? Was he really paranoid? And did he believe that this evidence was going to help uh him prove his case or or is this how he another layer of the control because he got it on tape
3: well i i think there is some cognitive distortion there for sure right from him mm. and there is an element that he believes that he has been victimized and i wonder whether that comes from the family court and what was happening in his family life and probably before when he was abusing his wife and and children and that he's built up this poor me syndrome and that he is the victim. And I think some parts of it he believes and other bits, he just wants to use that as leverage against the victims. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of him that does believe he has been victimized. And and that kept coming through to give that footage. And a lot of the footage is his own footage that he gave right. to, to Zach and the prosecutor. Wasn't it as if this was going to vindicate him or clear him, where it's just very clear that he... Was the perpetrator. And I think this is where the reality distortion, when you tell yourself something so many times and then it's being, you're telling it, you're manipulating other people's memories, you become God in your own world and others. I think, Jim, that part of these lies he believes himself and he has lost touch of reality, but I still believe that he is very much in control of what he's doing. I don't think that there is that much dissonance that he doesn't have. A grasp on reality, yeah, but it's uh, gone to the next level. And that's what they said at family courts. And I think that that would be a very interesting period in his life to look at and to talk to his ex-wife and to talk to his family members to track his history, because he's not who he says he is. He's just created all these different personalities, but he's 100% culpable in my eyes. I don't see that as He is not in control of what he's doing, but they are own goals in a sense of these video clips. And what I will say is whatever we're seeing, there's another million things that he's done that's probably 10 times worse that we're not seeing. This is the stuff that they could use and put in a, a docu-series, but with all cases of coercive control, there are always far worse things that aren't included. And it was disturbing enough what we were witnessing, wasn't it?
2: Yeah. And you know that what you just said is true because on the videos at times and in the audio, he would say, turn the video off because he's going to do something even more horrendous, you know, and, you know, just torturing in that case, one of the guys. But there's also this whole thing where he would he would take, they said, 100 to 120 milligrams of Adderall a day, like just down them all at once.
4: And one of the reasons that they're agreeing to do all of this is under this idea that they're getting their they're um, furthering themselves, their, their self-development, that they're learning how to be um, disciplined and better people in the world and understand the truth. As Lawrence would say, the truth about how life is, um, it's almost like they're going through like this boot camp that he's he's leading them through. Laura, I wonder if we could turn to just the two non-Sarah Lawrence individuals who come into this sphere of Lawrence Ray's influence. Because this was just absolutely terrifying to me that Santos, who was a student at Sarah Lawrence and who comes to live with Larry, he is so enamored with Larry that he introduces Larry to his parents who he charms, um, and his two sisters. Now his two sisters are not going to Sarah Lawrence. His one sister is going to Columbia University, and which we which are, other, and and their other. By the way, Columbia University has like I, I don't even know like a six percent acceptance rate. By the way, um, and his other sister went to Harvard, graduated from Harvard, went to Columbia Medical School, and is a doctor. She's on the brink of getting her full accreditation of being a doctor. So these are not some flighty artsy fartsy kids. I mean these are I mean these are brilliant incredibly women.
2: accomplished young women, yes.
4: Right.
3: Working okay. class backgrounds, really very bright and super smart. And yes, yeah, Santos, let's not forget he was dating Talia who was Lawrence's daughter. So there's that connection. And yes, yeah, Santos believes that this guy is the best thing since sliced bread and can help everybody. And so he introduces his sisters. And I think, you know, the Felicia introduction, what we hear about that is so distorted from the truth of what went on. The fact that what I hear is that he targeted her. He most likely got Santos to introduce both sisters and he targeted them. And the setup happened from day one the love bombing, the charming, the taking Felicia out the gifts, the hotels, the incredible dinners, you know, and she's a doctor. She's a smart, she's studying psychiatry, which is just the most, some people might think unbelievable thing. She's studying the mind. She's already a doctor and let's not forget she's working very long hours on shift. And when she thinks she's falling in love with him, because we hear it was love at first sight, bullshit. It was not love at first sight. It was a adult man, old enough, to be her father, targeting her, getting in her head her, yeah. Yeah, and manipulating her, buying her all the things, treating her well, making her feel special, making her feel understood when she is working incredibly hard to pass all of her exams and he's in her ear and he gaslights her, he gets her dependent on her. And then you've got the whole, she's sleeping on a mattress. She's got webcams and she thinks people are trying to harm her. And he's the only one that she's talking to about all of this. And he literally unravels her, gets somebody to pick her up from, uh, where was it that she was at? Los Angeles. Los Angeles, that's right, from Los Angeles and to bring her to New York. And then we just see her literally disintegrate over time. And the same with Yelitsa, And he turns the three siblings, he gets three siblings and from a Dominican family, and he turns them all against each other and isolates them totally from their mother and father and everything that they know. Now that takes someone who is incredibly manipulative and very calculating and very good at what they do. So yes, Felicia broke my heart. I have to say, just watching this incredible bright woman reduced,
2: broken
3: broken in front of us with her hair in the bird's nest, as she calls it, the Dominican hair, which Dominican women really pride themselves in their hair. And it's, she's disheveled. She looks completely reduced, malnourished, like she's not sleeping, not eating. She's crying, saying, Larry, save me from myself. And he does all of this. And then he comes in to rescue her, which again is classic as a coercive controller, you create, you reduce, you undo, you stop her from doing the things that she can do for herself. She doesn't trust herself. She's just wandering around like she's not in control of her life in a childlike state. And then she thinks he's the only one that having done this can save her. And it's such a sad reality. And the same for Yulitsa, who even claims that she was poisoning Felicia, which she wasn't. But right. they are so convinced from all these things that Larry tells them, but to get a whole family and to break that whole family up and the siblings, you can see how strategic and how well-versed and how well-planned he is in being able to do that. And that's all on him. I don't see any responsibility taking from from those individuals because once you're in it, you can't see the wood through the trees. Your world is upside down. And, and Felicia did lose everything. But I think the point you made, Lisa, about Santos, I could see vulnerability there in him. You know, I can see it when he was talking on, on screen. And I think that's one of the sadder things about it. He lost everything too. Yeah. That He was so reduced, but he was the one that got them all in, no. involved in the first place, which must be just... A horrific cross to bear for him as they're all coming out of the fog and it does take time to to come out of it but yeah. yes felicia and elisa were separate and he managed to target them using santos and bring them in and and reduce them
2: yeah and the you could see through the various young people that he that he manipulated the the torture that he had he slowly upped First, it was getting them to admit they did something wrong. Then they had to make a, a specific list of everything they did wrong. They have to make up things until he relents because he just pushes and pushes and pushes and browbeats them. And then, well, they they destroyed all these things, so they have to pay. So now they have to get money from people. They're begging money from their parents. They're begging money from their friends. They're trying to to appease him this is all incredible manipulation
4: so we should just reiterate that there are seven of them living in this one bedroom apartment on the upper east side and yes um he's he's basically got them in this state where he's rewriting their memories right? I mean, he's, yes. he's talking to them about their past and saying, well, no, that didn't happen to you. This happened to you. Don't you remember? I mean, he'll, he'd have them look at pictures of themselves as children and have them recount all kinds of things that never happened to them.
3: A new story that created vulnerability and turned their family into the enemy. And that new story would only suit him, his needs being met. And that, again, is a classic coercive controller where there's one person's needs being met. And as you said, Lisa, in a one-bedroom apartment that's not even his, Mm -hmm. that apartment didn't belong to him. He stole it from someone, and it took five years to evict him. But they're living in terrible conditions, and somehow this is all okay to them because they have Larry there who they believe is saving them.
2: Right. But one of the things, it wasn't, don't you remember? It was you're lying that you don't remember, remember, demanding that they remember. Mm -hmm. So they have to create these things in their head. They're trying to figure out how do I get him to not hate me? How do I get him to love me? How do I get him to stop browbeating me? So they have to come up with things. And then he starts folding in these conspiracies about how people are trying to attack him, how they attacked each other, how they poisoned each other, how they hurt each other, and then how they hurt him. And all of this was meant as part of that sleep deprivation and drugging them and working them to the bone and not letting them have any freedom, not letting them eat unless he wanted he let them all of these things together just piled up and just literally undermined their sense of reality.
4: We haven't talked about the financial level of this yet. This, oh, how he's he's indenturing them basically by yeah. any little scratch on any cup, any any little imagined or real infraction. He's charging them money for it. He's saying you owe me this money, and and they're believing it. And it's like thousands and thousands of dollars. And we can get into, you know, the yeah, extreme Claudia, that Claudia goes right. to.
3: Yeah. I mean, that Santos was the first one that we saw that with right of scratches and things. And in the end, he just had to list everything that was in the apartment and then he's going to his family to get this money, but he really believes it. He really believes that he does owe this money. And yes, with each of them, it was a similar story, but he would turn them against each other as well. And with Claudia, Her way of dealing with it was thinking, well, how am I going to make this money? And so she becomes an escort and she made millions for him. So yes, you have domestic servitude, you have exploitation, you have sex trafficking, but at the heart of it is the coercive control. And I think the, the video that we saw of Claudia talking where clearly Larry is asking her aggressive questions and she is almost in a zombie-like state, isn't she? Completely subservient. You can see the mind control that she is now absent in her own life. And that again is key with coercive control. You are a passenger in your own life. You don't have autonomy or agency, and your self-esteem has just completely disintegrated. But let's not forget at the start, what the others were seeing when Larry was being this so-called therapist was them being improved you know, shining brighter and being more confident. So we've gone from one extreme to the other. But yes, there was sexual exploitation here. And how did he get them there? Well, it was a slow process. Remember, the sexual boundaries were eroded where he had Dan touching Isabella and teaching them sex acts on each other. And they think that he's teaching Dan to be a man and Isabella the acts of pleasing someone. But he's the only one that's really being pleased sexually, right? So again, whenever I look at a case, it's whose needs are being met. And what we hear slowly through the three docu-episodes, and I think it's more poignant at the end where we hear about the sex acts of the girls as well, the women, I should say, Felicia, who thinks that she's his girlfriend, who comes to... is rescued, in inverted commas, from California, coming to New York. And here is her so-called boyfriend in bed, sleeping with another woman, Isabella. Naked. 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 Both, all of them, they were the rules that they had to be naked. So again, you have to listen carefully for what are the rules, what's the programming. And Isabella had to sleep with her hands on his genitals. So again, you hear Felicia initially questioning that. And then him saying, "Well, you're a liberated woman. this is about liberation. This is how how we do things, and his headworking ability to be able to quell and calm the concerns that each of them has at different times all talks to manipulation so yes it's it's all these subset tactics going on, but who benefits really there's only one person who benefits from these make goods of having to." Raise this money, or sell things, or bring money to the house, and it and it all goes to Lawrence. But we don't hear in the documentary what happens with that money. That was one of the the questions for me: of he's accumulating all this money from them, but is living in poverty in somebody else's flat. So where's this money going? There, are, there are still a lot of questions for me to be answered about. You know, as and Jim would know, I always say follow the money and that would tell you the story and if you did that just with this case you would see very clearly that he was profiting in every way but i for me i still don't think that that's a sex cult what do you both think
2: clearly he's sex trafficking at least claudia if not more of them but he's using sex as another manipulative tool he started with with isabella i believe and isolated her slept with her got her on his team and then used her to help reel in the next one and the next one and to enforce the rules and to document what was going on so he turns her into his lieutenant and that turns around and ends up hurting her
3: so what i will say is that for me when we have coercive control and a coercive controller the people that are being targeted they are victims And Isabella was the primary victim. She was the starting point for who was targeted. And that is very significant, particularly when it comes to prosecutors and FBI and law enforcement trying to figure out what's going on. They were all victims. She was the first one. And yes, she was carrying out the things that he had asked her to. But when fear is in the room or when you've been targeted and you've been undone and you are not in your own right mind or headspace she was not acting of her own free will and i think that's very important to understand because it's very easy to say she's the next galen maxwell Well she isn't the one that's profiting or getting her needs met in all of this she was just carrying out instructions from him and i do believe from watching her across the three episodes that that's what went on and she has been sentenced now And there were ultimatums given to her, but this is exactly why people must be trained to understand coercive control. And the perpetrators who use it are very clever and manipulative at what they do. And it might look like someone is acting of their own free will, but he set them all against each other. And I think a case could have been made, if you bring in the experts to talk about her being the primary victim, the most significant in the sense of what he did and how he got her and her memories rewritten. Because even when she talks about her mother, yes, I don't doubt that her childhood wasn't incredible. And I think that there were some problems in her childhood, but were all those memories accurate and real or was it again, Larry just substituting and manipulating her memories to think that she had such a terrible childhood and isolate her from everybody that had her best interests at heart and make her fully dependent on him. And that's what I feel I witnessed. And I'm only going on what I witnessed with using my own eyes and my own comprehension as an expert. And we could see the prima facie evidence of that with Isabella. And I don't like the fact she may be villainized and made to be something that she's not.
4: We've got so much more to talk about. Um, Please, um, with... Take care if you're going to watch this Stolen Youth three-part documentary on Hulu. I really recommend it for a lot of different reasons, but you can also go over and read the extraordinary New York Times Magazine article by Ezra Marcus and James D. Walsh called Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence. And there's a lot of interviews out there with the survivors, and we're going to get into how they got out. We focused today on how they got in, but how did they get out? And for now, this is Real Crime Profile signing off. If you like listening to our show and appreciate the work that Jim and Laura do and their expertise, you can do us a big favor. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our pod and leave us a five-star rating and write your thoughts about why you enjoy our show. It really, really is important and helps other people find us. Also, did you know that you can share our episode? It is so easy. On the Apple Podcast app, click the three dots drop-down menu, and you'll see an option to share to your socials or to a particular person, and then they can hear for themselves why you love listening to Real Crime Profile. Thank you so much for your support.
2: Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Real Crime Profile ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The
0: wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything.
3: You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that.
0: New cases. She wanted to fight me? Leave her. a OK, so, um. Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy award-winning series returns. How did I know that I have a crystal ball in my head? it's an all-new season it's streaming you can say anything <laughs> Judy Justice only on Freebie, Freebie. Alex Ryder is back hello Alex you have a lot of work to do to face his greatest challenge yet we have an active threat
3: they can wipe out an entire city
0: People are going to die. Now, he's running out of time. We have three days to find and destroy. He doesn't know who he can trust. We're not your
4: enemies. We never have been.
0: Everything I've been told has been lies. And our future is in his hands. The truth can be complicated. On April 5th...
1: This weapon is capable of inflicting 100,000 deaths in a
0: heartbeat. The danger is everywhere.
4: Scorpio are no longer hiding in the shadows.
0: The battle threatens everyone. It's personal. It's revenge.
1: It's kill or be killed. That's when you find out what you're really capable of.
0: And his choice could change everything. I'm sick of being manipulated to do what everyone else wants. Tell him the truth, all of it. The world is not black and white. All we really have are the people we trust. Alex Ryder, Season 3, streaming free April 5th. Stream Seasons 1 and 2 free now.
2: Real Crime Profile was created by Jim Clemente, Laura Richards, and Lisa Zambetti. Produced by Laura Richards, Lisa Zambetti, Jim Clementi, and XG Productions, and distributed by Wondery. Editing by Nick Jaworski at Podcast Monster. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba.